Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Today, I have Senior Master Sergeant Jamie Britt as my guest for the Blue Grid Podcast, Episode 35. He is the first sergeant of the 61st Air Base Group, Los Angeles Air Force Base, California. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Let's start right away. The reason that I invited you is because about a month ago, you and I had a conversation after your father passed. Right. And he committed suicide. Yes, ma'am. He committed suicide on 22 June. I'm very sorry to hear that. This is all in the midst of pandemic, and here you are back in the full throttle trying to help other airmen. Yes, ma'am. How are you doing? Well, one, I'm happy to be back helping other airmen. You know, that's what gets me through the day. I'm doing much better. It was a tough time, like anyone would expect that to be. It's something that maybe after it's over, it makes a little bit more sense, even though it's hard to make sense of that type of event. It makes a little bit more sense by the warning signs that you saw and some of the conversations that you had, and then just some experiences, you know, that led to that decision. For him? Yes, Mm ma'am. So just some backstory on him. My dad, he's a Vietnam vet. United States Marine Corps. He was in Vietnam, 68, 69, and 71. Three Purple Hearts. He was a Marine infantry radio man. He spent four years in the Marine Corps, got out, came back to the States, obviously. I don't think for an 18, 19, 20-year-old person that goes through that kind of exposure to, you know, violent warfare, I don't think you come back and you're ever really the same that you were before. And For my dad, I don't think that he ever really took advantage of some of the services that are available to today's warfighters as far as mental health services and whatnot. So He sought any help? Not that I'm aware of, no. He came back and he went into a career of law enforcement for several years. And then later in his life, he was more of a hands-on worker. But to my knowledge, he never really sought mental health treatment. He drank pretty heavily my entire life that I knew him and off and on drug use as well. And I think that both of those were probably a coping mechanism for the PTSD that he had himself. He was 70 whenever he committed suicide, which, you know, even as a first sergeant, I don't think of 70-year-olds committing suicide. I think that he had a lot going on. I think he felt alone, even though he wasn't. And yeah, he made a decision to kill himself with a handgun on his porch. I'm very sorry to hear that. And I know this has been a difficult time for you, but then you had to get back to work and and deal with pandemic and the airmen. What is that like for you? It was actually very refreshing. You know, we talk to our airmen all the time about taking a knee. 
I absolutely knew that I was going to be a little to no effect for our airmen and our mission if I stayed here. Big kudos to my commander, the airbase group commander and the SMC vice. They authorized me to go home and I took about three weeks to go home, take care of my affairs, take care of my family. So I returned back to the area. Being back was a bit of a godsend. The airmen were amazing. I got plenty of thoughts and prayers, cards. A lot of what I would normally do for our airmen, they were doing for me. I very much appreciated. But really, it allowed me to kind of focus my energy back on the mission at hand and keep my mind busy. But, you know, it also reaffirmed a little bit of what I want to do with myself. I gave a eulogy at my dad's funeral, and and in that, my main message, because there was a lot of veterans in the crowd, myself and my brother included, my message was taking care of yourself, especially when it comes to mental health. And that is something, as a senior master sergeant, first sergeant, I know that that's well within my wheelhouse from capability standpoint, but more so an experience standpoint. I know that I'm suited to maybe give people the encouragement and strength to seek out a little bit of help whenever they're going through something. My past is not absent from my own times of struggle with mental health issues as well. When you got back, you said that you received a lot of encouragement and cards and kind words from those around you. Did you publicly state that your father passed away? How did people know about that? No, ma'am. But so whenever I was getting ready to leave, he passed away on a Monday and I left on a Tuesday. I just let the command team know, you know, what had happened. Hey, my father passed away, committed suicide. I didn't know too many details, but I did tell them that, you know, I'm a fairly transparent person. And I thought that there was benefit. One, we're in a pandemic right now. And at that time, it was difficult to leave the area unless it was an emergency leave situation. Sadly, we had denied a couple of requests for leave during this pandemic. So, you know, for full transparency and disclosure, I didn't want anybody to think that the shirt was able to bug out during the pandemic for a small matter. So I told them that I was not concerned if they shared with the team what had happened. And were you okay with other people knowing that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, whenever I was younger in the military, there were times where, in fact, I would say the majority of times, this is late 90s, early 2000s, whenever I was a young and impressionable airman, I would look at first sergeants and chiefs and commanders, and they all seemed unblemished to a degree that I thought that they couldn't relate on some of life's challenges that I had had, that they may not understand where I'm coming from because I just assumed that they were squeaky clean to get to where they were. So yeah, I wanted the airman to know that I'm a human underneath this cloth. I'm an airman, but I'm also a human, and I have life issues the same as them. The unexpected happens in my life the same as theirs, and I deal with it very much the same way that we're asking them to deal with it. Take a knee, work on yourself, work on your family, get your mind right, and get back in the game. I found it very refreshing about you as the first sergeant working with you over the last almost a year, I think we've been working together, is that you're very transparent about your own problems And it makes you more relatable, I think, to the airmen. And you have a deeper sense of empathy for people's troubles and people going through difficult times. And that's what I've heard, the feedback that I've heard from airmen too. Like, he's cool, but not in a way that they're disrespectful, but in a way that they can relate to you and then they feel understood by you. Yes, ma'am. It is real, real in the sense that this is just who I am. 
I don't know that I was always like this, but I think the older you get and the longer you're doing something. I've been a first sergeant for almost four years come December, and I think the longer you do something, the better you're at your craft, which for me, it's just taking care of people, number one. So my emotional intelligence has grown immensely since I've been a first sergeant. It's grown immensely since I've gone through just life experiences. And I think that having the emotional intelligence to know that, hey, young airmen need to know that even first sergeants have a bad day. First sergeants can have a bad year. They need to know that. They're not stupid. They know that we have those bad days. I think the worst image we could send is, is to not shed a little bit of light to say, hey, even I needed to take a knee. Even I needed help. Even I needed to speak up and lean on a shoulder. Because that's encouraging to me whenever I see my leadership do that. Mm. So I know that's encouraging for folks to see me doing the same. Mm-hmm. And you said you did have to, in the past, ask for help or take a knee. Could you talk about those experiences? Yes, ma'am. So... Probably the toughest time in my adult life and toughest time since I've been a first sergeant. In October of 2018, I lost an airman to suicide, Airman Corey Elledge, amazing young man. You know, there were some signs that he was struggling, so we worked on those. I worked very closely with him as the first sergeant at Minot Air Force Base. And even my best efforts didn't seem to work in the end. And sadly, he took his life on a Wednesday morning. And I took that very much to heart. I second-guessed what I did wrong, what I could have done better, the tactics I used to interact with him as his first sergeant. And I have no doubt that there was some survivor guilt in that because, you know, there's always the what could I have done better. So I struggled with that. You know, this was October of 2018. Winters are not that easy in Minot, North Dakota. So going through that, and then I went to a very large and challenging squadron thereafter. And I just felt like I couldn't get ahead. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I was hitting a wall. And progressively, as the year went on, it just seemed to get worse and worse. One thing that I don't know if it played into some of the challenges that I faced last year was I had an ATV little rollover that gave me a pretty bad concussion. I sought medical treatment for that. I don't know if I was TBI or something, I'm not sure, but regardless. You said you had at least vertigo for Yes, ma'am. I had vertigo for about seven months. So I was seeing a neurologist and trying to get that under wraps. And thankfully that did end because that's pretty difficult to deal with whenever you can't tie your shoes without falling over. But through late in the summer, early fall, It was just getting to the point where, even as a first sergeant, I was questioning, am I able to help other people anymore? Because I felt like I couldn't get out of my own way. I honestly couldn't place what in my life was so bad that made me feel so bad. I think I felt almost like a little bit of failure because I had had all this training. I was a, you know, almost a 40-year-old man at this point, and, and I was a first sergeant, senior master sergeant, and I was struggling just to get through the day. Did other people around you pick up on it? Or did you talk about it? Yes. Actually, the first sergeants were a small team, especially here at LA. There's only two of us, but in Minot, we're a small team either way. And yes, the other first sergeants picked up on it. And we had several closed door conversations. I spoke with the chaplain a couple of times, but, and even after having those conversations and still you expect an immediate change 
and your mood or your mannerisms after that and not having sought out mental health support previously, I was a little disheartened that after doing that challenging talk that I didn't really want to do anyway, but I knew I needed it, I was a little disheartened that it didn't help. And stubborn of me, I didn't go straight over to mental health after that to seek help. And instead, I just let it kind of fester to the point that the stress and the anxiety started giving me chest pains. My wife and I were actually driving back from Minot to the base one day, and I thought I was having a heart attack. I mean, I had left arm pain, difficulty breathing. I don't know if it was a panic attack or what, but I pulled over and called the nurse hotline because I just didn't know what was going on. It felt like a heart attack. So she forced me into the primary care manager's office. The nurse. My wife did. Yeah. So the nurse told me I needed to go see him, but my wife was not going to let me not go see my doctor. So I credit my PCM, and sadly, I cannot recall her name at the moment, but I credit her with, I don't know if she saved my life, but I feel like she saved my sanity because whenever I went and saw her about these chest pains and the stress, she almost immediately picked up on what was going on, and I didn't really have to go into too many details. And she said, Sergeant Britt, your ticker is just fine. Your anxiety levels I can pick up are through the roof. And it seems like you have some depression tied in with it too. Let's try a little pill and see if this is going to help out a little bit with what you're going through. And she went in to explain serotonin production in your brain and how this is an SSR inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know much about the medication, but I was willing to do anything at that point to wake up with a better day the next day. So she told me that that medication would take about four to six weeks to kick in and have an effect. And she was wrong. <laughs> I took that medicine that evening after I was prescribed it, and the next day, I don't remember what day in October of 2019 that was, but that day until today, I am the best version of myself because of a small little 10 milligram white pill. What an incredible change. Incredible. Small things. Absolutely. And you know, I think I did the right things by trying to reach out to my team members, my other first sergeants. They thankfully were there for me as well. And I reached out to the chaplain. But what it told me was, even with your best efforts, you know, get out of your own way and trying to work through life's issues. Like for me, I kind of look at this as maybe something's going on, you know, in my noggin that I just really don't have control over with the serotonin production. And I kind of compare it to, you know, someone with diabetes that needs some extra insulin. It's not their fault. It's nothing that they really have control over, no matter if they put their best efforts and mind to it. And I think that must be the case with me because this October will be a year later and it has been probably the most productive, energetic, happy year of my life after my PCM picked up on that and helped me out. So if you're out there, shout out to you, ma'am. Your life has been very close to taking a direction to unwanted places in life. And you have been very close to making possibly irreversibly poor decisions in your life, from what I understand, at least from our last chat. Could you talk about those and starting from your early childhood? Sure. You know, I talked about my dad earlier. My father and mother divorced before I was one, so I never really knew them together. And my brother and I, we went into the care of our dad. So we grew up living with dad, who, again, great guy to the point of he loved us. I love him. But he did have some challenges with alcohol addiction, and that led to some violent temper outbursts and some abuse, physical abuse, 
for pretty much our entire childhood. My brother, doing the case of most big brothers, he looked after me and he took the brunt of it. So I definitely appreciate his watchful eye when we were growing up. So that, I think, started to kind of probably set the tone for teaching me how to respond inside the household. It never affected me as far as being physical with my family, never was, but it led to alcohol abuse by me. I started drinking whenever I was a freshman in high school, and I drank for the first 12 years I was in the military, and it took almost losing my marriage, which at the end of this month will be 22 years, so I knew that I was going to lose my marriage because of alcohol, so I think that a lot of that substance abuse probably I learned from within the household. And then because of the turbulent situation growing up in that kind of environment, I did gravitate towards my mom. I was a mama's boy. We spent. But you didn't live with her? No, ma'am. It was about every other weekend we would go and stay with our mom. And then we would go back with our dad. And, and what was that like? It was okay. I mean, we looked forward to it. We enjoyed She lived out in the country with my grandparents nearby. And we had a great time when we went out there. It was stress-free. It was a, kind of like the reprieve from the tensor situations, you know, back home. But it was good. I enjoyed it. I mean, again, not knowing them together, it just seemed normal to me. I always grew up with step-parents. My dad, to my knowledge, he was married seven times or eight times, and my mom was married five. So hmm. I grew up knowing step-parents and changing households quite often. But yeah, it, it led to some bad decisions in my high school years. Actually, by junior high, education kind of took a backseat to what was important to me. And I played sports in the seventh grade, but then I decided I'd rather run the streets and, you know, act crazy through high school. So I quit playing sports and got into drinking pretty bad and partying. And, and then, boom, life hit you something I never thought would happen. My mom called me and my brother and let us know that she was diagnosed with lung cancer. This was my freshman year of high school. And then we went through the summer. My brother and I went to Indiana and stayed with her and her husband in Indiana for the summer. And the cancer progressed to stage four. and It was determined that it would be terminal. And she was given about six months to live. Mm. And the doctor was very accurate. She passed away about six months later on uh, January 6, 1996. So for me, that was crushing, not just because I lost my mom, but because she was my outlet. That was my escape from, you know, the crazier scenes of life. At home. At home. So I think I rebelled even more after that. And eventually I wound up quitting school my senior year because I had skipped so many days, either skipped or just overslept because I moved out of the house with my dad and I lived with friends my senior year. So I had no parental supervision and I wound up quitting school because I had accumulated about 40 days of missed class. And at my school at the time, it cost five bucks a day to make up your days. And I didn't have that kind of money. So I quit school, but I was also an employee at the school before I quit. I worked in the library and apparently the staff there saw more in me than I saw in myself. So the librarian that I worked with, she and some teachers, they passed a hat and raised the money to send me back for all of my makeup days. And they came out to my house where I was staying and offered me the opportunity to come back to school if I would take it. 
which I did. I didn't want to, but I definitely owed it to them. And thankfully, I graduated high school. I met my wife my senior year, and we got married in September of 98, and I joined the military in November of 98. What could have been such a different direction in life? I credit my wife definitely from changing the direction of my life. I don't know where I would be without her. I definitely don't think I would be in the military just because my life wasn't heading that way. So, Did you join the military because she suggested that? No, ma'am. While I was living with my dad my senior year before I moved out, he was urging me to join the military, and I actually delayed entry into the Army initially, but it was at his urging. So whenever I moved out, I backed out of that commitment to the Army. They weren't too happy. And then I had no intentions of joining the military, but when her and I got married, life was hard, as it is for a lot of young people. Getting a home of our own was difficult. I was living with her brother and another friend, and it was just tough. And we wanted a place of our own, and I couldn't afford it. And we knew that the military offered some stability. Mm -hmm. And in my family, pretty much most of the men on my dad's side were all military veterans. So it kind of seemed like the natural thing to do. And Mm -hmm. I can't say that I joined initially for patriotism, Mm -hmm. because I honestly joined back then just to have a roof over my head for me and my wife. And here we are 22 years later, and I love it. Yeah. So you continued drinking, then you joined the Air Force, and you continued that trend. What happened then? I came in the military initially as a F-15 maintainer. And if you've ever met any maintainers, we play as hard as we work. So it was just easy. I had started drinking and smoking cigarettes at a young age, and that just never stopped whenever I came in the military. And I don't want to say that it was encouraged but everybody was doing both. Mm -hmm. So I drank really hard. It probably got progressively worse as I was a maintainer. And then it came time for my enlistment in and I didn't know what to do. So I retrained and I became a weatherman. And by that point, five years into the military, I was definitely an alcoholic. I'd been drinking for a long time, but I was very good at hiding it. Did you know at the time you were an alcoholic? I didn't know. I mean, because for me, I was young and I enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed hanging out with my friends and, you know, partying, but I didn't enjoy it the next day, you know. No, I I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. I don't think I really realized that until the year that I decided to quit, because at that point, when things started just piling up on themselves, I was like, I'm a pretty smart guy, even with a Texas education, Mm -hmm. and I can't understand why I'm making some of the decisions I'm making, and I had to attribute it to alcohol because, you know, there wasn't any other vices really in my life other than that. And something that surprises some people was in 2009, I was a staff sergeant that had just found out he had made tech sergeant, and I was at Patrick Air Force Base, and my wife and my three kids, I hadn't been drinking at the time, but I'm sure I was on my way to do so at a restaurant for a UFC fight, and We were driving across space, and I got pulled over for an odd situation, erratic braking, but that's not really the point I'm trying to make. But back then, it was my temper, and I don't know if that was a learned thing from the home life or it's just who I was, but I disputed the traffic ticket more than I should have, and that led to me being asked to get out of the truck. I was apprehended and placed in the holding cell there at Security Forces Building for about It seemed really long, but I would imagine it was probably about three hours or so. Whether I disputed why I got pulled over wasn't the thing. 
hindsight 2020, I know better now. I should have just accepted the ticket, whether I was in the right or the wrong, and disputed it Monday morning with my command team. Instead, I did the foolish thing and got upset about it on the side of the road at Patrick Air Force Base and used profanity. And man, it didn't take long for me to wind up in the clank, you know, in handcuffs. And I was booked on, I don't remember what article of the UCMJ, but it was using profanity in the presence of a sworn sentry. So Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that that was a UCMJ article at the time. But my first sergeant came and picked me up. We had a conversation, though he understood why I was upset. Undoubtedly, he knew that I made a mistake. And that mistake led to me getting LOR from my squadron commander at the time, was a full bird colonel, because of the nature of what our business was. And I got an LOR from the full bird, and I was very embarrassed. I was very worried. Again, I had a line number for tech sergeant, and it, mm-hmm. it took me five times testing to get that line number. And with one bad decision on a Saturday night, I was in fear of losing it. So I got the LOR. I thought about where I wanted my career to go, what I was doing, why I was doing what I was doing. And I just made a plan to not let that define me, especially because I was a new NCO at this unit. And I didn't want them to think just that of me. And I wound up digging my heels in and really getting to work there. And I think I did a really good job. And that's one of the messages that I want young airmen to see in NCOs that make similar decisions. Mm -hmm. That could have defined me and I could have held my head down and drugged my feet, but I didn't. And in 2009, I was arrested for that. And 2010 came, here's a new year. I was given an opportunity to excel and a second chance. And I wound up for that same unit that I got arrested in, I earned NCO of the year 2010 and 2011, wow. so two years in a row. So Amazing. to me, that's a powerful message to send to people when we tell you some mistakes can lead to the end of your career. Some we allow you to stay in. You know, we do corrective action and allow you to stay in. And there is a second chance. And I really want people to understand that, that we want you to improve and make yourself better and broaden your career. And they gave me that opportunity. And I really appreciate it. I don't know where I'd be if they hadn't. And so through this entire time, are you still drinking? Yes, ma'am. I drink until 2012. I stopped off and on like most people that drink. You know, it's kind of like quitting cigarettes. I quit cigarettes in 2001. And I bet you I quit 50 times before I finally stopped smoking. But the same can be said with alcohol. And for me, like a lot of people, I was embarrassed to say I had a problem. So I didn't really want to go to my command team. I didn't really want to go to medical and tell anyone that I had a problem. Because again, you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. I was the guy who just won NCO of the year the prior two years. So at that point, do you know that you have a problem? Are you aware of that? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I mean, by this point, I know that I knew that I had a problem, but I knew that, you know, I was waking up on time. I was going to work. I wasn't drinking on duty. How did you know then you had a problem? Because by the time I got home, one of the first things I did was make a mixed drink and I drink till I went to bed. So to me, that's a problem. And I knew that because that's what I grew up watching. And I knew that that was a problem in our own home. So I knew that what I was doing was very similar to what my dad did throughout my childhood. And then it led to angry arguments with my wife, with my kids that Mm -hmm. could have completely been avoided. You know, like if I was how I am now, I think that I could have avoided a lot of regrets. And again, even though it never turned physically violent, 
I was probably like the most unpleasant person to be around for a number of years. And you knew that about yourself, but you couldn't stop from drinking? No, I mean, well, I did eventually stop on my own. But again, I don't remember if my wife told me that, you know, it was either her or the alcohol, but I told myself either it's the marriage or the alcohol. So maybe May of 2012, and I just decided I wasn't going to drink anymore. So I quit drinking, and I probably went about a year and a half before I ever even had another beer. Mm -hmm. Here I am, eight years later, I can drink a beer, no problem, and I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to have three or four beers. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've been able to figure out that, hey, after you get done mowing the lawn, you can have a beer, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to anybody's parties and starting to drink. That's just not me. I don't know that I trust myself on how much I would drink if I decided to make a mixed drink. So I just avoid that altogether. When you go out with people, what is that like for you? I don't care what they think. <laughs> you, you, know, you just drink water? Yes, ma'am. You know, if they need a DD. And I'm a first sergeant now, so things are definitely different. I can't drink in excess anyway, and I shouldn't be as a first sergeant or as a senior NCO that other people are going to call me needing help. So for me, it's a win-win situation. And at 40, I genuinely don't care if somebody is disappointed that I'm not going to do a keg stand. That's just not me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about your darkest or loneliest moment and what helped you get through it? Probably the darkest moment, I guess, would probably be after my mom died. Worried about how I was going to get through life without her. For me, that was probably it. There was a lot of regret there. I was a 16-year-old young boy when she passed away, and I knew she was going to pass away. I'd already been told that it was terminal. But again, I was running the streets and not doing really what I should have been doing at 16. And there was regrets when she actually passed away because I was like, man, I could have went over there every day the past week, and I didn't. I felt guilt, and then I also... I just was concerned, like, what am I going to do? I actually, I didn't say this earlier, but thankfully my sister and her husband, not long after my mom passed away, they moved to Missouri. And after they moved up there, I kind of could tell that things weren't going to work out with me and my dad in the house. So my sister let me move with her to Missouri. And I jumped on a Greyhound bus one day and I took a bus to Missouri and I lived with her for several months before I came back home. That was probably the darkest time just because it was the unknown. I was really worried what I was going to do with my life and where it was going to go. And I didn't have those every other weekend reprieves out in the country to kind of just relax. So that was probably the darkest. And then in my adult life, without a doubt, last year, and again, I can attribute some of my feelings to his suicide in 2018 and then possibly a bad concussion. But when I think back about it, there wasn't anything significantly horrible going on in my life. And that was one of the more frustrating things was I was having a tough time pinpointing why mm -hmm. I felt bad. And I didn't really know. But yeah, 2019 was a tough one too. Sometimes it could be more confusing when people don't have a reason to blame or pinpoint a particular thing or event. Yes, ma'am. But still feeling badly. That, that That can be more confusing, I think. Yeah, it made me mad at myself, too. Mm -hmm. So you're already feeling down, and then the fact that you can't figure out why you're feeling down or how to stop feeling down really frustrated me at myself. I think people who've never struggled with 
any kind of anxiety or depression. Maybe they don't understand it, but it's easy to say it's a pity party, but it absolutely, you know, it's just a miserable place to be. And man, I will make it my life's effort moving forward to be that shoulder and that set of ears and then just an action point to get people help. I don't want anybody having a 2019 in their life that I had. So out of all that, you know, the negatives or the pain, I don't know that I would change anything because I'm a really good guy today. I know that. I know that my wife would agree. I'm a great husband today. I've had airmen say that I'm a, I don't know if I'd say great for a sergeant, but they really do appreciate it and they let me know. And that matters to me. I'd rather have one airman tell me that they appreciate the things I'm doing than 10 commanders saying that they appreciate the things I'm doing. Because if the airmen are saying it, then I know I'm doing the right thing. They mean it. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, when we say it, we mean it. <laughs> when I say it, I mean yes, it. But mental health means it. Who or what is your biggest inspiration? I do have a lot of people in my life that have caused me to have positive moments. So you could call that inspiration. I'm inspired every day by, I can't put a number on how many mental health consultations I've gone back with airmen. And I've listened to their story. I've related as much as I can with my own stories because I think that's important so that they can see that, hey, you're not strange and you're not going through something that you can't overcome. Mm-hmm. I'll overcome it with you. I'll get down in the hole with you and help you. And I'm inspired by tons of airmen that have, to me, gone through way worse things than I've gone through in my life. Sexual assaults or near-death experiences or substance abuse that led to two or three DUIs or drug use. I mean, I've sat in closed-door conversations with mental health providers like yourself and Airmen, and to see them from two or three days after the horrible incident to two or three months later, you know, sometimes it's a year later. Everybody's recovery road is different. I'm inspired by that. I mean, I'm inspired that more and more airmen are getting out and seeking help. I'm very knowledgeable and understanding of the fact that there's a lot of senior NCOs and field grade officers that are going through similar struggles that I went through. I'll be inspired by them actually going to get the help they need. At the end of the day, our teams deserve it. I'm put in a leadership position, a key leadership position to support the commander and however many hundreds of airmen. If I fail to go get the help that I need or make sure that I'm the best version of me, like I feel like I am right now, then I'm failing them. And it's an obligation, it's a duty, but it's also a want to be operating at maximum capacity. So I'm inspired by any other first sergeants or chiefs or commanders or anyone in the frontline supervisors. If you're struggling, your airmen are going to pick up on it. Hmm. Your attitude may drive their altitude. So if you wonder why they may not be where you want them to be, perhaps you're rubbing off on them. Mm -hmm. So I would challenge anybody that's struggling or not operating where they think they should be. There could be something going on that you may not even have control over, similar to myself. But yeah, that's inspiring. I'm inspired by hearing you say that you're the best version of yourself currently. That must be a very empowering thing to say out loud. It is. And I mean it. You know, there's times where I get a little agitated, but I'm agitated and I get over it, Mm -hmm. you know, like the agitation feels normal, like other people, it is definitely the best version of me. And I'm glad that I can give that. I'm glad that last September, October, whenever I was considering 
is it the right thing that I maybe I should go tell the command chief to take my diamond? And I hate saying that, but it wasn't for me. I just felt like I was not doing what I should be doing for almost 600 defenders and a very large security forces squadron. I think back and everybody around me was telling me I was doing a good job. I just didn't feel that way. But thank the Lord that I didn't do that. Mm. And then I went and saw the PCM because here I am today. I extended my first sergeant tour to take this assignment. I'll have almost five and a half years as a first sergeant when this is over. And I wish I could keep going. Reality is I can't keep going. I'll have to go back to my career field, but I'm loving this. And I love airmen and I love helping them. And I like being humble in my experiences. I like being transparent. If anybody sees that as a fault, I can't understand that they would. But if they do, I hope that they'll look inward and understand that maybe they can connect on some of these things that I'm talking about. Understand that their airmen are going through tough times. Life is hard. Life is a challenge, especially now during a pandemic and racial disparity and social justice reform and things like that. We have got some significant things happening in our life outside of finances and getting promoted. And I just hope that people will understand a little bit of transparency will go a long way and just genuine caring, Mm -hmm. genuine, genuine caring. I can tell when people are faking emotions, so can our young airmen and our young officers. So genuinely care about them. This is a family affair, and let's do everything we can to make everybody enjoy coming to work, everybody work at maximum capacity so that we can get the mission done. Everybody wins in that scenario to me. Yeah, very inspiring. And I'm really happy to hear that being transparent and being vulnerable has worked for you. And it's good to hear that example from somebody who is successful and believes that they're the best version of themselves. Very cool. My last question to you, what's your secret? What's your recipe for daily grit? (laughs) Right now, I'm a motorcycle rider. So even with this lovely 10 milligram pill, I still have to have my outlet. My outlet is motorcycle riding. Two of my oldest kids are out of the house now. I still got a youngster in the house. I spend more family time than I ever did before last October. So I just try to do whatever I can to keep happiness around me, to make the people that are around me happy, just to cherish like the time you got. You know, the military career is going to go away very soon. I'm 22 years in, and even if I stay till 30, eight years is going to be here and gone before I know it. So I think just living every day how you want to live it. Hmm. Safely, responsibly, of course, legally, but living it, you know, how you want to live it. I think that's the recipe to life. And then the last thing I'll throw out there is I talked about racial disparity and social justice reform. I have really, really dug into understanding how other people besides me feel, especially other people that don't look like me or don't have the opportunities I have. And I would say that connecting with young airmen and old airmen, doesn't matter, through conversations of what right looks like, that's been refreshing to me. Some of them are tough conversations, but man, it's refreshing. And it's sad at the same time because you don't want to hear that people aren't feeling the same way you do in the nation, in the military or whatever. But, you know, we got a lot to work on and we're working on it. But uh, yeah, the key to success is just find your happiness and work on it. And then if you're not finding that happiness, when you know what the recipe is, get help. There's help out there. Very good. Thank you so much. Appreciate this conversation. This was 
senior master surgeon, Jamie Britt, and this is the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail.com.